Welcome to this edition of Bringing Light to the Darkness, a regular podcast by Pastor James Rasmussen and Pastor Robert Dixon, recorded from Oasis Christian Fellowship at Sunridge Village Assistant Living and Memory Care Community Center in Bula City, Arizona, where Pastor James is a resident. They have developed this series of short messages in order to share the journey from within this community and to bring light into the darkness in small and big ways. Before we begin, Pastor James would like to remind the audience of the following. Some books are to be tasted, others swallowed, but there is only one book to be chewed and digested. It is called the B-I-B-L-E, Basic Instruction Before Leaving Earth. Now here is Pastor James and Pastor Robert with this week's episode of Bringing Light to the Darkness. I want to introduce my pastor, Rob, and his wife, Renee, and ask them to discuss. Hello, everybody. This is another edition of Light in the Darkness. Last time, we read two-thirds of a letter written by Renee's sister. We read the letter, and then we stopped at a cutoff point. Now we are going to read the rest of the letter, and then after we read that, we will have some discussion. Robert, could you please start about a sentence earlier than what you cut off last time, just to give people an update of where we are? Sure enough, Pastor James, here we go. They were willing to find a solution for me, so they instructed me to bring my father to a hospital emergency room in hopes that he would be admitted. It was not a guaranteed plan, but it was the best they could do. My brother and I were very uncomfortable with this, as it seemed contrived and underhanded. When the time came to bring him, we couldn't do it. By the fall of that year, I was desperate to get some sort of respite care so that I could have the time to focus on school. Thankfully, I was able to find a solution by having my sister and her husband care for my father for a month. As they lived in another state, this could not be a long-term solution because all of my father's doctors were in California and he also received Medi-Cal through the state, which supplemented his Medicare. But it worked for a time and was a huge relief. My sister was able to care for him three more times for two-week intervals. He had become more difficult each time, and even once escaped the house and had to be picked up by the police. Meanwhile, I was admitted into the credential program and was set to student teach for the school year of 2018 to 2019. 
This would mean full school days every day plus night classes twice a week. I tried one last shot to get him into a nice Catholic care facility, but they had a year-long wait list. I tried to get him into adult care. One day, care wouldn't take him because of his colostomy bag. Another said they would accept him on a trial basis, but the place was smelly and crowded, and my dad refused to go. So my brother decided that he would sacrifice sleep and wake up early to care for our dad while I was teaching. He endured this for the whole school year to the detriment of his health. My brother and I held on to a possible solution of hiring an aide, but we needed to make repairs to the house first so that it would be more comfortable for an aide to work there. For every attempt at repair, more issues with the house would be discovered, and we never got the work done. By the summer of 2019, I applied again for in-home health care through the county. The application needed paperwork from his doctor listing his medical conditions and his specific needs. After we got this done, the social worker sent us a letter with the date of an in-home visit. I had to work that day. They picked, so I called the office to reschedule. They canceled the appointment, but they never called back to reschedule. Meanwhile, my father went from bad to worse. He was falling more often. He was wandering the house at night, and he was frequently escaping. By October 2019, he would barely eat, and he was becoming less and less verbal. We had several ER visits for his falls that only resulted in negative x-rays and discharges after several hours of waiting. On one such visit, I asked to see the hospital social worker so that I could get help for placement. She gave me a brochure of area care facilities, many of which were private hospitals that didn't accept Medicare. The rest were either too far away or they were the same ones I had researched to fertility. She also suggested the same daycare center that had rejected my father for having a colostomy bag. After a fall in the house in early November, I took them to the hospital and demanded blood work to search for any underlying medical condition that explains why he wasn't eating. Although my father had weak legs that impaired his mobility, he was still very strong in his arms. He was very difficult in the exam room, and it took five nurses to restrain him while trying to take a urine sample. This is what it took to finally get him admitted into the hospital. Although the tests found no medical issues, the hospital still worked on getting him placed into the same subacute rehab hospital he was in after his 2012 and 2014 surgeries. I was very relieved and it was my hope that the 24-hour nursing care and physical therapy would restore his strength. Unfortunately, my father continued to refuse food. The rehab facility would not take him unless he had a feeding tube. 
It was then that we made the difficult decision to take his refusal to eat as a sign that his body was nearing the inevitable and that he was at the final stage of his journey with Parkinson's and dementia. We were presented with one final hurdle. Although he was admitted into a very comfortable hospice, he did not seem to be near enough to death to qualify for him to stay there. The hospice was only for imminent death. So his stay at the hospice was temporary and, and they were still working on getting him transferred to the rehab. My father ended up declining more quickly than they thought and he died before they could transfer him. I wish I could say that this was the final indignity in our journey through the elder care system, but we were left with one more insult. A few weeks after my father passed away, the county health services finally sent us a letter saying that my father didn't qualify for a home health aid and that his application was denied. And that's Angelica's letter. Rob, Angelica mentions how you and Renee took uh, your father-in-law into your house a couple times. Could you and Renee go over what that was like? Yes. Uh, Renee's dad, Vicente, stayed with us for weeks at a time to give Renee's sister, Angelica, a break while she was in school. Yeah, I got trained on how to change the colonoscopy bag. And I um, just overall um, how to care for him, care for his health and his, his different needs. And Renee showed me how to do the colostomy bag, and I would help as needed. The first, uh, the first month we spent uh, with us went pretty well. After that, his dementia got worse with each visit. And as Angelica mentioned in the letter, she, uh, he even got picked up by the police. So let me tell you that story. So Robert would leave for work very early each morning, leaving my dad and I sleeping. Well, one morning when I uh, woke up, I looked at my phone and I saw that I had missed, uh, I had a missed text message on my phone. Ah, I had missed text messages and missed phone calls. I was still half asleep, so I didn't really know what was going on. I listened to um, one message from my older sister that lives here in the area uh, where we live. And all she said was, do you know where your father is? Again, I was half asleep, so this really confused me. Um, I walked around um, the living room, his bedroom. I looked out the, you know, the front door, the garage door, and he was just nowhere to be found. Of course, I was at work then and had no idea what was going on. So I listened to my messages and found I had gotten a call from the local hospital at a very early hour. I can't remember the exact time, but it was very early. I also had a text from my sister, Angelica, and, my, and also from my brother in um, California. I called my sister that lived nearby, and she told me she had dad at her house. Yeah, it turns out he walked about two blocks from our house before getting tired and confused and was sitting on the curb to rest. I don't know how long he was there, but a police car came by and stopped to investigate. He was actually able to show them ID, but wasn't making much sense 
So they took him to the local emergency room. So the staff there checked his wallet and found the card I had made with the cell phone numbers of all six of his children, four in California, two in Arizona. Everyone got a phone call. My sister went to the hospital to pick him up. She couldn't get a hold of me at that hour, so she just took him to her house. I called Robert at work, and he came home right away. We went to pick him up, and he was happily watching TV, not knowing, as usual, who any of us were. He did recognize Robert, however, and willingly got in the car with us to take him back to our place. We did have him stay with us a couple more times, and he never wandered away again. However, he did start getting violent, demanding to be taken home. After this, his doctor in California advised that he not be moved around so much because it was adding to his confusion. Yeah. And so this was about the last time that he visited with us. Yeah. He got pretty bad after that. Okay, uh, Renee, mm -hmm. one time we were talking and you mentioned your father didn't in his uh, environment didn't have a high esteem for ladies getting education? Correct. Um, it, he didn't make a big deal out of it um, and for the most part, but um, he did always tell um, tell me growing up and my sisters and uh, mentioned it to Angelica that he just wished we'd find husbands to take care of us. And I think he was especially tell Angelica that he didn't want to die until she was married so that he knew she was being cared for. And in the letter, um, you know, she was trying to get a good college education so she could, um, you know, care for herself and, you know, care for my father in the long run. Um, and, you know, at first he was like, why do you keep going to school, you know, get a get a job but you know she did explain to him that going to school would in the long run help her to find you know a good job and and he was cool with it but you know his initial reactions were very um you know find a husband <laughs> you know was the word you used pastor james yeah <laughs> find a provider yeah exactly so I learned, and I think you and uh, Rob did too, and I hope the audience, a whole lot from this letter. Not only the frustration of a young lady who loved her father tremendously and tried because of her family culture to do anything to place him in a facility. This caused her and her family to wait too long before they started investigating their options. And because of this, when they finally did, it was already an emergency situation. I also learned about some acute hospitals and acute hospitals and memory care and adult care centers and associated living. All these things, I always assumed before I came here, of course, that all 
old people got sent to a retirement home that handled everything. Thanks to Angelica's letter, we learned it's far different than that. Also, Angelica's letter shows us no matter what, times change, conditions change, and it can get awful frustrating. One minute you think you have the answer, and the next minute something happens and you no longer have the answer. The best way to make it easier, and it's never easy to put your loved one in a home, but the best way to make it easier is to create a file with all the options long before you need them. In Angelica's letter, she said around 2016, is when she should have really started investigating all the options. Also, keep a file of your elderly person's special needs. No place is good for all elderly, and all elderly cannot go to any single place. And if you as much of that as you have researched ahead of time, the smoother the transition will be. I only have your last one question for you, Renee. Did Angelica ever finish getting her certificate? Yes, she has a teaching certificate and um, taught for the first time this last school year. Although because of COVID, um, she didn't finish the school year because all schools closed. So she did start teaching art in um, in high schools, in a high school. So but that she, is loved, so, she loved it. That is so good to hear. <laughs> Everybody, please. I know she's going back because no one knows if the schools are opening yet or not. <laughs> oh, yeah. So everybody, please. I would urge you to go back and listen to the first half of the letter and listen to the letter and see all the things that can happen, all the different cultures that get involved, the guilt feelings, the remorse. No matter how hard you try to justify it, it's going to come. The remorse, the guilt, it's not a pleasant experience. But preparing ahead of time makes it be less painful. Thank you for listening. That was another edition of Bringing Light to the Darkness, a regular ministry of Oasis Christian Fellowship. We thank you for listening and look forward to further opportunity to bring light into the darkness. As a reminder, we can be wish for questions, comments, or prayer requests via email at lighttheway at email.com. L-I-G-H-T-T-H-E W-A-Y at email.com.